for me that all there was a moment when I I was in my mid 40s where I said you know I'm going to have to pick a path like I can't keep bouncing back and forth probably and it seemed to me that finding a way to be of service that spoke to me more so I don't think it was any big revelation it was just like I've been back and forth enough to know that's where I get more juice you are listening to the real leaders podcast your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet people and profits i'm your host kevin edwards and that message was from buddy teaster the ceo at souls for souls and on today's episode i asked buddy about the impact a shoe can have on the soul what motivated him to switch to the nonprofit sector and how to choose a path that gives you the most juice so without further ado ladies and gentlemen let's give it up for the real buddy teaster enjoy Okay, here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Buddy Teaster, the CEO of Souls for Souls. Buddy, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Thanks. All right, so Buddy, I'm, I get a call from my mother this morning. And she says, she's like, oh, I see you're, you're interviewing Buddy today. And I'm like... My like, yes, I am. She's like, well, oh, do you know who he is? And I'm like, yes. I, I think that my response is that was a poor question. Of course I do my research. You know, come on, give me give me a break here. And she was like, well, you know, he, he's got that thing with the, the DSW. They've donated over 46 million shoes. Like, it, I'm really excited for you to speak with him. I, I just hung up the phone. I said, you know, she's a shoe, a shoe snob. I hung it up. I put the phone down. And I said, you know what? This would be a great first question. And I'm just thinking about my childhood, buddy. And I'm just going to vent here to you. Um, my closet growing up was half of my mother's and half of her dresses and half of her <laughs> shoes. There's shoe boxes everywhere. I think the woman has probably a hundred pairs of shoes in her closet right now. So I wanna help her out with this first question because I know that she can donate her shoes to Souls for Souls as well. But the question for you isn't about the condition of her shoes first. The question is, what was the condition of Souls for Souls when you took it over first? Well, first, I'm going to come back to your mother because I love her <laughs> already. Uh, so when I came to Souls for Souls in 2012, it was bad. It was really tough. There was a reason they were looking for a new CEO. And the organization since 2006, really fast, a lot of super things that happened. But uh, managing it well wasn't one of them, unfortunately. And by the time I got there in 2012, all the... All the things you care about, Kevin, if you're any sort of a business person, what's the state of the board? What's the state of the financials? What's the state of the team? What's the state of your reputation? I had big red flags by them. I came, we were technically bankrupt. The team was super demoralized. Our board had shrunk to about three people and our reputation had taken a real beating. We got some very bad local press, a lot of bad local press and some bad national and more industry press. And so that's what I came into. And, you know, often when I look back, people will say, well, why did you do that? That sort of was an insane thing to come into. And it really comes down to still uh, seven and a half years later, the way that Souls for Souls approaches helping people get out of poverty using business and philanthropy together, I find incredibly cool. I did then. I thought it was still the, the core of the, a great idea. And over the last seven and a half years, we've done a lot of a 
lot of help from a lot of people to get back on the right track and really drive that mission further. So, buddy, uh, you came into this company. Uh, it was almost bankrupt, and you decided to carry out this mission. What exactly is the mission of Souls for Souls? So, it's the mission really hasn't changed, Kevin. How we've talked about it has, and right now we're really using opportunity as the focus. So, for us, how do we use shoes and clothes, which is what we collect around the world, new and used? How do we use shoes and clothes to create opportunity for people, whether that's to start and sustain a small business, to create a job for themselves in places where those opportunities don't exist? It's an opportunity for people to go into their closets, maybe like your mother, and <laughs> donate things that they aren't using anymore and can put to a much higher use instead of throwing them into the trash, which is what most of us still do, unfortunately. Mm. And it's an opportunity for companies to look into their warehouses and in in partnership with our customers, how can they use what they have in a different way? And then I think also for other people, it is an, it's an opportunity to serve, right? It's an opportunity to, whether that's to travel with us and put shoes on people's feet or to just let people know, hey, I can make it easy for you to donate shoes. That opportunity, I think, when we first started was much more narrowly focused on helping people get out of poverty. But as we talked, I realized that opportunity, the, the more holistically we look at it, the more people we can engage. So that mission really hasn't changed. We've gone from when I first came, we talk about, you know, sort of getting better one pair at a time, which was pretty limiting. Then we talked about wearing out poverty, which I think moved us in the right direction. And now we're talking about opportunity. Got it. So maybe let's break this down. I think you have a really interesting business model. Uh, but first, for maybe our audience to uh, conceptualize this, could you break down like uh, the the supply chain of say like a Goodwill or a Buffalo Exchange versus a, a Souls for Souls? Sure. So there, uh, it's a really smart way to ask the question because. In some ways, we're the same. We're sort of competing for the same thing from people's closets in particular on the use side. And there's some really important differences. And they're interrelated, right? These aren't things that mm. uh, just sort of exist in isolation. So <clears throat> let's start with Goodwill since that's one that people know really well. They are the master at this. You know, they make it so easy. Convenience is probably the number one reason people donate to them. Mm. But they also – and I – I think unfortunately they get a bad rap because they really do phenomenal work at creating meaningful job opportunities for people who often don't have any. Mm. Right. So I think that gets lost. People think about them as a retail store and it's a place to kind of dump your stuff. But what they often don't really understand is the thousands and thousands of jobs that creates, but their main push is they move that to the retail chain to create revenue so they can employ these people. That's a lot. They do very little fundraising. So it's a, uh, really interesting model. And it's super local. Buffalo Exchange is, I think, taking sort of skimming the cream, if you will. They're, they have a really high standard about what they would accept. Same for Plato's Closet and Thread Up and The Real Real, all these other companies that are similar. And they take the best of the best of what people want to sell. And it gives people who might have donated before a way to monetize that, right? So it's a very uh, different way of thinking about what your used product is worth. You used to just say, I'm not wearing it. I'll donate it. Now you're like, well, this good stuff, maybe I'll sell. And then for us, uh, but again, very heavily focused on retail, but we have decided to continue to lean into really hard is we're not going to be in the retail business. It means we're leaving a lot of money on the table. 
because the re- there's a lot more margin than in retail than what we're doing. But what we've decided is we want to compete hard for those same th- goods that are coming out of people's closets. But how do we get them into the hands of entrepreneurs in the developing world in a way that allows her, mostly women, to keep most of that final sales price? Right. And like, mm. you know, in any business, the small players have the least leverage and it's no different in the used clothing business around the world. Shoes are the same that they're buying in small quantities. They don't have much market power. So they end up with the worst stuff at the highest price. And I'll just give you one example. So let's say you go into your closet and you donate a pair, uh, 10 pairs of shoes. Well, some of those are probably pretty valuable and they get sold and you donate them to Goodwill. They get sold first thing when they go into Goodwill. People are like, that's a great pair of Adidas. I'll buy them. Mm. But what doesn't get bought there goes to their outlet store where stuff gets sold by the pound and some more good stuff gets picked out there. But what doesn't get sold there might go to a broker in Miami who's going to then move that stuff to Haiti, who then will break it down into three or four other markets. So now what's happened is you didn't want it. Somebody at the Goodwill retail level didn't want it. Somebody at the Goodwill outlet didn't want it. And so, so on, right? So by the time it gets to the woman that we're working with, all the good stuff is gone. And every time somebody touched that product, the price went up. And what we said is how do we cut out the middleman as much as we can so that it goes right from your closet to her? Hmm. So what that means is that she's got, there are really two, three important things. The first is she can really make a living now, right? There's real margin in there for her to invest in her family, which is what she does 99% of the time. She's got product that nobody else has in the market, so it turns faster. Get retail 101. And then the third thing is it gives her a position uh, in terms of dealing with us of power. Because we're selling the shoes to her, she can come back and say, I need more of this, less of that. She's an equal in that transaction. And if we were taking the typical charity route of just donating that stuff to them, she's got to take what we give. And now she doesn't. She is an equal. And so she has a real sense of her own power, which is phenomenal. And it keeps us really attuned to what the market wants. And we do that all in the context of putting as much money as possible in her hands. Mm. Okay. So you're in a unique, in a unique position essentially to tell the consumer or whoever's donating their shoes that listen, this pair of shoes can go much further than just your local goodwill. This pair of shoes is going to, uh, reach someone in a developing market, uh, that can have your high quality Nikes that I'm staring at right now. Uh, that's not going to sit on a, on a goodwill and then potentially, you know, be sold to, uh, you know, another dozen stores that until they're finally purchased and the price goes up and it's more shipping and it's more uh, carbon emissions, things like that. But I'm interested though, how do you identify these entrepreneurs? How do you identify these countries and what are some challenges you, re- you ran into along the way? Yeah, those are really the right question. So for us, our whole model, whether we're giving away shoes for free, which is a big part of what we also do, or through this micro enterprise program where we're selling these shoes, a key driver for us is finding the right partners. And so on this microenterprise side, we wanna find people in the country who meet a couple of criteria. One is that they're doing other, first of all, they're a not-for-profit, so we're looking for somebody who has already said, my goal here is to help in a different way than just making money. Although we want them to make money, that's not the driver. Hmm. The second thing is they're 
often and doing other important work. It might be education, nutrition, healthcare, but they're plugged into the community in all kinds of ways. One of which includes how do I help create jobs and you know improve economic prosperity for people. And then the third thing is that they have a way to identify and support those entrepreneurs. So I don't have any confidence that I can do that effectively from Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live, but I have a lot of confidence in our partners. So it's a really important decision for us because we, the trust level has to be really high. You know, we're not there every day. In some places in Africa where we work, we might be there once every year or two in person. Mm-hmm. So there'd be a high level of trust. We, we look for people who either have or we think can develop a really good business sense because we run that part of our business like, a, like a, any for-profit business. You know, margins, you have to negotiate, you have to think about accounts receivable and cash and moving money out of sometimes very unstable places politically as well as economically. And the, the way for us to do that has been developing these deep partnerships. So that's probably the most important thing. And they know their community. So when, when they pick an entrepreneur, we trust them to know that they're bringing in the, the right folks. Got it. Got in it. terms of the problems, <laughs> and you know, they're our legion. There's no question about that. Is First of all, often these people have not really had any kind of business training. So they're willing to work really hard, harder than anybody I've ever met in my life for the most part. But they don't have maybe any, often they're not literate or barely literate. So they don't, it's not easy for them to read or to, you know, find ways to improve their business. So that's important to think through. But the other thing is most of these countries where we're working, you know, we, we identify places that are kind of at the bottom. So we're not, we're not trying to go to the second world. We're going to Haiti and Honduras and Zambia and Uganda places where, as I already mentioned, a lot of political instability is likely or always going to happen. Uh, the currency situation can be really challenging. We always deal in dollars, but for them dealing in their local currencies, like right now, today, we were having this conversation about Haiti. A year ago, it was 46 goods to the dollar. Now it's 100. So the currency is worse, less than half it was a year ago. Yeah. That's hellishly hard, right? So, and these are already, you know, in organizations that are barely getting by in many cases. So one other thing to say, and then I'll I'll stop, but... We didn't really think about this at the beginning, but it's turned out to be a huge benefit. By having this partner on the ground who's an NGO, they also have the opportunity to develop an earned income stream, right? In many places, they're trying to get by on school fees, raising dollars often in the U.S., maybe some government grants, but they're really struggling to you know, keep it all together financially. And when we come in and say, this is the approach that we're taking – And we say, we want you to also generate some cash that you can invest in your organization. That has been a lifeline for some of these organizations and allowed them to sustain and expand what they're doing much faster than they would have otherwise. Now, these NGOs are paying you a dollar per pound, right? A dollar per pound of shoes. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's exactly. Uh, In most cases, yes. We have different grades of shoes that are less expensive, but are lower quality. And so... Sometimes they want to mix those in, but our, our model is with them is really simple. It's a X per pound, the dollars, the most they would pay. Mm. They pay for shipping and customs. That's sort of on them to figure out. They are best positioned to do that. 
um, then we make sure that they are fair with the entrepreneurs. We want them to make some, but not all of that margin. Right. So in, I, I just walked through the numbers in Haiti pre-currency uh, devaluation. We sold them for a dollar. Sam, our partner there with the Haitian American Caucus, had another dollar-ish in them in transportation and taxes. So his cost was two. He'd sell them for four. And the women would, you know, their average price is around 10. Hmm, okay. So the average price doesn't change, right? That's set by the market. But before they were paying $8 a pair for a lousy product. So their margin was $2. Now they've got great product and their margin is six. So when you think about tripling your income, that's, that's pretty, it can be pretty dramatic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's, that really goes into this next question is how are you measuring the impact? You know, a lot of people think impact can't be measured financially. Um, and it's measured through, you know, say, I don't know, transforming lives or, uh, the amount of shoes you put on somebody or through reduced carbon emissions, something like that. How are you measuring impact and why is that important to your organization? Yeah, this is a hard one. I'm sure in many of your interviews with other guests, this is always a, a tough topic for the NGO crowd. So we went down the path originally of trying to measure jobs created and income generated. And we've there were two big problems with that for us. Hmm. One is it did not capture the value of the free product that we give away, and it has a real value, You know whether that is actual value or money that parents don't have to spend on shoes for their kids, for example. Hmm. So it didn't capture a big part of what we do, and that was a problem. But the other thing that we found is by asking, by asking people what they were making, a fear often was, well, if I told you how much I'm making, you will use that against me in the next negotiation, right? Because there's, there's not very often a standard price, right? Our price to Sam is a dollar a pound, but every bag he sells to every entrepreneur, they negotiate fiercely over. So she was really worried that that would be used against her. So we were not getting good data. We said, well, and, and it's hard, right? So it's hard to get any kind of data. So we're like, wait a minute, we're working really hard. We know we're getting bad data and maybe creating this crazy dynamic that is not helpful. So we backed up and said, how do we try to capture all of that? And we came up with, for us, a value of economic impact. And we have a pretty good sense from talking to our entrepreneurs in the, in the markets we're in of what is the value of a shoe that stays in that community, right? So we're not trying to capture the dollar that we make, for example, but what stays in the country with our partner and the entrepreneur. So depending on how we distribute the shoe, whether it's uh, for micro enterprise or in free distribution, and whether it's shoes or clothes, each of those have different values. So we can say, all right, how much have we put down each of those channels, multiply it times the economic value, and we come up with a number. That, is, that we can apply across these markets. So it's not perfect, but it's consistent and allows us to make, I think, really, to make better decisions that aren't just financial. And I'll give you an example of that. So a few, maybe 18 months ago, two years ago now, Toys R Us went bankrupt, which also meant Babies R Us went bankrupt. And we had a company call us and say, look, I got a warehouse full of baby shoes that the, they're walking away from and I'm stuck with, do you, can I donate them to you? So we talked to our partners like, hey, is this something that you can use? And so we talked to uh, one of our really great partners, a social enterprise in Moldova. And he said, this is what I could get for these shoes in the, in the market. And if, 
it didn't cover the cost of our labor and shipping and everything else. So mm-hmm. if we only had a financial metric, Kevin, we would have said, no, thanks. Like, it doesn't make any sense for us. Mm-hmm. But because we had this economic impact metric of like, that's what really matters. We said to Mark, look, if you'll just cover the labor and shipping costs, we'll get you the shoes. So we were able to, it was 144,000 pairs of baby shoes. So we were able to keep 144,000 pairs of shoes probably out of the trash. That's a win. Right. We got them into Mark's markets so that the people there would be able to avail themselves of that and they don't have tons of access to product. And we put economic, like real economic value into our column. And so having that economic value lens has been invaluable for us. We use it every day. This is not one of these things like we pull out once a year for the annual report and say, how do we do? We use it every day. And so our goal is to have a billion dollars in economic impact by 2030. Hey, that's a big goal right there. And, and where are we right now? I mean, that's, we're, t- we're 10 years away <laughs> from that. Where are we? Yeah, so we are at about $450 million-ish, probably, probably a little lower than that, actually, wow. since everything is kind of falling apart with COVID. So we have a lot of work to do, right? It's been sort of 10, 12 years to get to where we are. So we've got to definitely steepen the curve. But I think the thing that will, there are a bunch of things that will help us. We're expanding. We're, you know, we opened an office in Singapore to collect shoes and establish ourselves in Asia. We did the same thing in the Netherlands last year so we could expand into Western Europe. So a part of it is how do we collect more stuff? But for us, the biggest thing is how do we drive as, because for us, the highest value is that direct partnership, like in Haiti or Honduras or Moldova, as much as possible. So anything that we can move in those channels drives our economic impact higher. And so we have a really clear framework for making those decisions. So it's going to be hard. I don't think there's any uh, sense that this is just a lay down to get there, but we do, we do know what we have to do to get there. And I also like to point out that, you know, sometimes there are things that you cannot, you can't just can't measure, you know, and it's, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, especially for, you know, someone who used to be a big basketball shoe snob, you know, those pair of shoes do a lot for your confidence and oh. they're really your identity. So I can only imagine, you know, what these kids in these developing markets in these in these worlds are what, what a pair of shoes can do for their confidence, for their morale uh, when they, you know receive something like that and that's hard to measure that's hard to track right so uh, I'm, I'm just thinking right here buddy you know when we would go on like a traveling circuit for like aau basketball right like you would see mm-hmm. a few of the players who had the really nice you know new kobe's and then you would see some of the players that were playing in like converse you know or that the and one shoes and and you get a sense of where these these kids you know come from um, what about here in the United States of America? I mean, there still are a lot of homeless kids out there that are looking for their next pair of shoes. What are you doing uh, inside our borders? It's a great question and one we really struggle with for, for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> so when we give away things for free, Kevin, we only give away new product. And there are people who argue with that decision, uh, and including in my own family, <laughs> who think, look, if people don't have You should give them, even if it's used, you should give it to them. And this decision was made at the beginning of Souls for Souls, even actually before it officially existed, because uh, the same people who went on to found Souls for Souls responded to Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And what they heard from people really early on was, look, I've lost everything. 
still, you don't have to give me a pair of ratty old shoes. The, the, your point about dignity and identity is true whether you're in Louisiana or Liberia, right? Shoes are a part of that. And so I think Souls for Souls made that, that decision, and it's very wise, and I agree with that 100%. But when companies donate new product, often they will say, hey, we're happy to do this, and we believe in what you're doing. But you can't distribute that product in the U.S. We don't want it to be returned to stores. There are some very valid, real commercial concerns, and we – like those corporate partners are our lifeblood in so many ways. So we, we respect that. Mm-hmm. So we have this weird dynamic of what are we doing in the U.S., but a lot of the product that we get donated, we can't use here. So one of the things that we're doing, Kevin, is instead of just sort of taking a blanket approach, uh, in the last few months and with what's happened economically starting in March and it's going to happen for a long time, it's going to get way worse. There are about a million and a half kids in the U.S. in the public school system who are who experience homelessness at some point in the year. Hmm. That's a lot of kids, hmm. right? And thank God we've got food banks who are trying to help feed them. We've got organizations who are doing the really hard work to figure out how to provide stable housing. Those things are super important. And what we're hearing from the administrators and teachers who are involved in helping and support those kids is as more and more schools go to uniforms and there's sort of this standard approach, shoes become the one thing, again, to your point about your basketball thing, became one of the points of differentiation. So what that means is if you're not in the game, you're bullied, picked on, targeted. It's just crazy to me, but shoes now are, can be a flashpoint. So we are launching this program called For Every Kid, where our goal, eventually, we have to work up to that, is to provide every kid in U.S. public schools who is experiencing homelessness at least once a year, a new pair of athletic shoes. Wow. We think we're going to continue to, you know, we've, we have this amazing partnership with Macy's where we provide winter coats that they, they get to us and we distribute on their behalf. And with them, 35,000 winter coats a year is a big damn deal for a lot of people. And it's an amazing program. Oh yeah. But we think trying to really lean into and say, all right, this, this is a, this is a problem we can identify that we hear from the people at the front line who say this is valuable to solve. It seems like if this is going to be done by somebody who knows anything about shoes, we ought to be a part of that. And we are very excited because when we talk to people, they get the problem. There's a very clear path to help. And nobody denies that shoes are important. So for us, it really is going to be a change in our model. Um, you know, right now we've had this ability to sort of say one dollar equals one pair because we get product donated. We move it around the world pretty inexpensively, but that's because all the shoes are already donated. We're going to have to buy shoes in this model mm. so that we can guarantee on the. So we're trying to figure out what that means from a fundraising perspective. We earn about seventy percent of our revenue through our micro program. So we have a really strong earned revenue program. But we're going to have to figure out how to fundraise around this for every kid thing so that we can really be sure that when those kids need those shoes, we're able to provide them. 
So there's this interesting parallel between like nonprofits and solving problems and then like for-profit social entrepreneurs and, you know, the intention to deliver a, a meaningful pair of shoes for an entrepreneur to make a living, to provide for their family is a unique model that has some legs. But what you're telling me is, you know, we're trying to figure this out in terms of our, our source of revenue coming in. We have 70% of it coming from these these NGOs, these micro entrepreneurs from this model. Um, but in order to have the impact we want by 2030, we're, we're taking a, a closer look into this. Now, buddy, a lot of the entrepreneurs, a lot of the sustainable business owners, the CEOs, I'm sure you've all you know had, had interactions with as well. You know, the main thing they say is like, you know, nonprofits cannot scale to solve the world's greatest challenges. What do you say to that? Um, boy, that's a great question. <laughs> I, so I'll say two things. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that tax status equals scaling or not scaling, right? If the idea is there, I think it can scale. I, I do agree, however. Well, let me back up and say one more thing. Often because I think the not-for-profit model allows a more complex definition of success, it scales better. Right? If you've only got one dimension. So, so I think that's a, that's a real plus. I think the hardest part on the not-for-profit side is access to capital. And so from that perspective, I think the, you know, the for-profit social enterprise folks who say, it doesn't scale. They have a point. I just think I'll just speak for ourselves. Like we've had to be more creative about that. Mm. And, you know, if we had $10 million at one time, could we scale faster? Probably. But I don't think that means it doesn't scale, right? It's just that the time frame is a little different. And there is probably also something, Kevin, to be said for scaling at the right pace, make sure that it's sustainable. You know, some of these places where we're working, if we scaled really fast, they they couldn't absorb it, right? They don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the financial resources. So it's not a it's not there it's a multi part equation. Mm-hmm. And to just say let's scale this piece doesn't mean it keeps scaling all the way down or up. And I think that's an important thing. So for us, there are times when I'm just like, God, if I could go out and raise ten million dollars, we could get there so much faster. <laughs> that's true. I don't know that it would be that much better. Right. Got it. So uh, I'm just trying to think about this right now, buddy. So uh, you're saying if we could have had this money, yes, it could scale fast, but that's not really why you're doing this. And that's not really the model you want to have at this point in time. Um, So I'm trying to think right now, like uh, in terms of the mission going forward or actually scrap this. Let's let's take a look at this, buddy. You've you've had experience in the for profit sector. Uh, you come into this nonprofit mm-hmm. sector and then now you're saying, hey, we're going to flip this around. We're going to change this model. And it's been a pretty effective model now. Um, that's why I have so much respect, you know, for these nonprofits, for these social entrepreneurs. You said we have to get creative about the way we bring in, uh, bring in money, bring in capital uh, for this initiative. Now, what's the message right now to to other business leaders in this space that we need right now to solve these world problems? So, uh, one, I try not to get too much on my soapbox, but I think. Um, I can get on it is, you know, if you even go back five years, Kevin, when, when the conversation about 
impact investing and social capital started to really get traction. I think there was a window there when what that meant was how do we help the not-for-profit community scale, right? I, I really believe that that was the intent. Mm. That quickly evolved to we're only going to fund for-profit, I'll put in quotes, social entrepreneurs, because I think that's a super wide definition. And only if there's an exit are we going to invest. And so all that capital that at one point was, I think, going to head toward this more complex definition of success went to the same old definition of success, multiple <laughs> exits. So, so there's a part of me that's really pissed off about that because mm. I think it's a missed opportunity. So, but what I would say to other, especially not-for-profit leaders is I just think, you know, it's sort of like uh, Ginger Rogers, you got to do it. I have to be twice as good, but do it backwards and in heels. I just think that's on us to, to be more creative, to find different kinds of partnerships with philanthropists who really believe in that model. And for us at Souls for Souls, one of the things that's interesting that we're trying to figure out how to tell the story better is when you, if Kevin, I came to you and said, look, for $100,000, we can open a new market in sub-Saharan Africa. We want to go to Ethiopia. And, but I said, but what I can say to you is I only need your startup money. I don't need any of your operating money. I don't have, I don't come back to you in year two or three and say, I need more hmm. because the model, once it's up and running works. So I think that's a part of what we have to be able to, to, to create uh, how do we go to business leaders and social impact folks and say, I just need money to get started. I don't have to come back to you every year. I might come back to you for a different country <laughs> in three years. I don't have to come back to you and say, uh, we, we, we need $100,000 in Ethiopia to keep it running because we don't. So I think finding those ways of telling the story of your money is used in a different way than just to keep it running day after day, which I think does wear on people. And to say, be plant a seed with us, and then you can see that grow about every year having to put more into it. I think that can be a really appealing message. So for us, that works. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but I think that's a part of the constraint that makes us more creative. And I believe that there's real value in Okay, I'm going to bitch a little bit about the constraints, but mostly I'm going to say it's just going to make us be better. Mm. Well, what I'm picking up on here is, uh, you know, what you're saying is when you say plant a seed, that there's more meaning to something like this. You know, and I, I, I sense that, you know, maybe you had something, some revelation maybe in your own life that you said, you know, I, I need to do something with more meaning. I want to do something that I really enjoy and I want to take my expertise, my skills and apply it to something that I can see grow. Now, did you have a revelation buddy and, and maybe explain how, you know, this came to be. So, you know, uh, someone's way smarter than I said something about the dots only connect when you look backwards, right? So (laughs) it's easier to to tell that story now than it Mm -hmm. was in the moment, but I have gone back and forth between the for-profit and not-for-profit world, my whole professional life. And I will, you know, some of that time was at YPO. Sometimes that was in partnership with YPOers in the for-profit. Sometimes that was just pure technology kind of startup. And for me, that all there was a moment when I, I was in my mid-40s where I said, you know, I'm going to have to pick a path. Like I can't keep bouncing back and forth probably. And it seemed to me that 
finding a way to be of service that spoke to me more. So I don't think it was any big revelation. It was just like, I've been back and forth enough to know that's where I get more, more juice. Mm. But then when Souls for Souls came up as an opportunity, I'm like, wait a minute, this is the perfect blend of both, right? If you walked into most of our executive team meetings or our quarterly planning meeting, there'd be a lot of talk about KPIs and metrics and margins, and it would sound a lot like any other corporate planning exercise. Now, we have that other dimension, and, and you nailed it. It's around meaning. It's one of our core values is that's what infuses the rest of that in a way that I, I've never gotten anyplace else. And the way that business and impact and purpose and meaning are intertwined at Souls for Souls, just I feel like everything I did in my life led me to that moment, and I've never been happier. Like I've never been more engaged, even as things right now are kind of burning down. Mm. I'm totally alive at figuring out how to do get through that because I believe so much in the work that we do. And when the curve starts to go back the other way, we want to be ready to help people who want to find a way out of poverty or knew who need help because they've been flattened by the uh, economic collapse. So that's what drives me. And a big part of that is because I get to do both things every day. So for people listening to this who want to pour some water on the seed and let this thing grow, how do they get involved and how do they help? Well, the first thing is to exhort people like your mother. <laughs> like we all have this stuff in our closet. I love your mother. <laughs> um, it's the, like we all have this stuff in our closets, our kid closets that we don't use anymore. And because we don't know exactly what to do with it, nothing happens. And we usually wait until it gets to be a big hassle or we move and then we throw it away, put it in the box and forget about it. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is to go in your closet, figure out what that stuff is. If you can donate to Souls for Souls, which you can do through our website, Zappos will pay for the shipping for you to send it to us. We make it as easy as we can. When stores open back up, we have a great partnership with DSW or you can drop it off in their stores. We try to make it super easy. So the first thing is just do that. It's, that's good for your soul. It's good for the planet. And it helps to create opportunity for people. Mm -hmm. I think there are other ways. One of the things that, Kevin, especially as we work with companies, YPO companies and you know big multinational companies as well, employees are looking for meaning. Like companies want to mean something more than just the bottom line. Definitely. And I know that's sort of cliche to say, but we see, we work with people in the footwear business all the time, small retail stores, all to Adidas. And you would think, well, those guys like they're tied into sports and they see their ads and they like, they're part of this meaningful thing. And then you get them in front of a kid in Guatemala and they're putting a pair of their shoes on those kids' feet. And it connects in a way that nothing else can. Mm. That guy, that person's not leaving Adidas, right? They're like, I am in for what we're doing. And I think that's true whether you're, you know, 50,000 employees or 50 employees, people want that kind of meaning. And whether that's through doing a shoe drive, whether that's traveling with Souls for Souls, there are ways or using your excess inventory or engaging your customers, right? There's all, there are all these ways to make that happen. So I think that's another one. And we do have to raise money. So if there are some people listening who really want to support this idea of using entrepreneurship and the capitalist system to help people get out of poverty for the long term, 
then there are opportunities to help us drive that faster, right? That, that's the scale part of what you mentioned. And then the last is this for every kid. I think this has got the potential to be a really important initiative in this country. Um, I thought that a month ago, and I think that's going to be even more so. I think there's going to be a lot more people out on the streets, lost jobs, lost houses and apartments. At some point, that's going to happen. And we want to make sure that we're there to help. So those would be the ways that I would invite people to get engaged with Souls for Souls. It, that's great. So people listening to that, go to soulsforsouls.com, check it out. Uh, make sure that you are contributing uh, to to transform lives uh, all in all. And, and, I, and I don't want to overstep the environmental impact of this as well. I mean, the whole circular economy, the whole sharing economy of uh, the idea that you know, the fashion industry uh, pollutes and uses terrible dyes and, and single-use products can now extend the life of that product uh, in, in a meaningful way that can transform lives, put more money back into people in developing markets that can provide for their own families. It's incredible stuff. The system's there, and, you know, it's leaders like yourselves who are using these business problems in socially constructive ways that are going to change the world. So, buddy, just want to appreciate your time coming on the show today. I had a pleasure speaking with you learning more about souls for souls any last words today for our audience i think one of the things that i've learned the most vividly over the last seven years kevin that we all have this capability right we work with seven-year-olds who collect twenty-five thousand pairs of shoes in their community and we travel with 70 year olds who go put shoes it the thing i love about souls for souls is you don't have to be able to write a check you don't have to have lots of connections and resources. You just have to have the ability to believe that I as an individual can make a difference and go in your neighborhood and say, Hey, do you have any extra shoes? I love the fact that this doesn't have to be a big complicated undertaking. It can just be reaching out to people, you know, and that it also goes all the way up to people who are sophisticated and say, you know what, there are ways that we can make a difference that are systematic, not just individual. And I think finding those places in our lives where an individual action matters and you can have this sort of impact at scale. If you find those opportunities, don't pass them up because I don't think they're that common. Buddy, systems change is going to need a lot of leadership. And I mean a lot of leadership, someone that can connect with a lot of different people on a lot of different levels to inherently have a movement going on to you, buddy. Let's wrap this up. What is your definition of a real leader? I think for me, Kevin, a real leader is somebody who is authentic. Again, another sort of a cliche word, but somebody who's attitude and philosophy are no different than their actions. Like there's total congruity between those two things. And I think the other one increasingly for me is someone who is in it for the long haul. I'm an ultra runner, right? So Mm. I think I have learned a lot over the last 20 years about how things are hard and you want to quit, but you can't. And so that ability to find ways to kind of power through that, Mm. those things combine for me so that there's this ability to be in it for the long haul, as well as to be totally authentic while you're doing it are probably two of the most important ideas about being a real leader. Buddy, well said. I didn't know you're an uh, an ultra runner. Aren't those like 100 mile, 140 mile races? (laughs) 
Not 140 miles, uh, but 100 miles, yes. So for, for me, that's between the 50K, which is 31 miles, and 100 miles are the things that I've, that I've mostly done. And you know, I'm slow, like literally timed with a calendar. But <laughs> the community of people who do it and where we get to do it are pretty spectacular. So it's the thing that's probably kept me as sane as anything else in my life. Well, I'm sure you got a good pair of shoes that will keep you comfortable as well. <laughs> Buddy, appreciate you coming on the show today. For Buddy Teaser, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, live in congruence, power through, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right, good people. And thank you for tuning into this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications of this podcast. And for all the lucky listeners today, you are going to walk away with a free magazine. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and enter in coupon code podcast25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a year subscription. Folks, that's four magazines for the price of three. All the content, all the messages, all the leadership wisdom in those magazines. Again, folks, podcast25, all lowercase. And for the visual learners today, as you noticed, there, there was a little audio issues today, so we had to go by phone. So there is no video of this podcast, but for all of the other episodes, they are going to be hosted on our new YouTube channel at Real Leaders Magazine. So make sure you go on there, subscribe, see all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Lastly, folks, if you enjoy this this podcast, if you want to hear more leaders please help us out and leave a review to continue this podcast and to keep it going. All right, that's it for me. Thanks again for tuning into the Real Leaders Podcast and stay tuned for the next episode.